0: Welcome to Wallachia. My name is David Ely. The previous six episodes of this podcast comprised a novella I wrote called Flowers of Transylvania that is a prelude to a longer story called Wallachia, a Penny Dreadful. This episode will start with the first chapter of Wallachia. We're jumping forward to 1816 from the 1740s and moving south from Transylvania, but you'll run into a few things that might be familiar from Flowers soon enough. Wallachia. A Penny Dreadful by David E. Lee Chapter 1. Welcome to Wallachia The Principality of Wallachia, in what's now known as Romania, had its share of problems long before it came to be ruled by a vampire. It was 1816 and resentment of Turkish authority was growing. The enslavement of the Romani people would remain legal for another 40 years. A prolonged season of cool weather was starting to cause food shortages. In the Carpathian Mountains, just south of Transylvania, a small village sat in a valley cut by the Argus River. Most of the town's population was gathered in a stone church surrounded by thick walls. Inside, the occupant of the second pew faced a problem on a somewhat smaller scale than her country's political, cultural, and economic troubles. Marley was dead, or she would be if she made another sound during mass. Her father's frown made this clear. It said, I'm glad to have you back home, but this is your sister's day. Maté, whom she called Tata, had learned when Morella Elena was little that they could positively not sit anywhere in church where she'd be able to see Yon or the two would be making faces and not paying attention to Father Abraham the entire time. At 19, after a year away, she certainly should have attained the maturity to keep her composure, but there's nothing quite like sleeping in one's childhood bedroom to cause behavioral regressions. So, giggles. Marley turned her attention back to the altar, where Father Abraham was reciting Quia pacavi nimis cogitcione verbo operi et omissione. Marley managed to repeat, mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa, along with the congregation before her thoughts wandered again. Dora had grown tremendously in a year. Marley shouldn't have been so surprised. When Dora was eleven, Marley had been able to see her sister as a little girl. But now, at twelve, Theodora looked like a little copy of Mama. She was wearing the same white gown Marley and Loreline had both worn for their first Holy Communions, complete with the veil that Marley had hated but Loreline adored. Loreline, At 15, no, 16, her birthday habit in April, blessedly didn't look so different. A small bit taller, maybe. She was probably a full 10-year taller than Marley now, who took after Tata in her short stature. They had similar great masses of golden hair, and the same pale sapphire eyes. Marley had a clear memory of Loreline's first communion, the way she'd pranced around in her veil on the day before, and Mama had laughed and smiled and then told her to take it off so it wouldn't get ruined. It had only been a few years, yet it was another life ago. Et bibit mayum sanguim, and me menet et ego and illo. Father Abraham was reading from John. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Dor will be taking the Eucharist in a few minutes. Marley had been fond of Father Abraham from the moment he'd moved to the village when she was four years old. She thought his accent was cute. He'd recognized in her a precocious interest in practically everything. At first, it was questions about his homeland, Styria. Then she'd wanted to know about the church— the differences between it and orthodox churches, why it had such big walls. He'd patiently explained the history of fortified churches to her that mused at her level of focus. Bright children often move to a different topic before you can answer questions about the first. But when Marley wanted to know about something, she kept at it until she got what she needed. She particularly liked languages. She liked that people created words as a way to organize the world, and then found ways to have the same word for different things, and many words for the same thing. Her mind skipped down a path, starting with one word and wondering wherever associations took it. Wallaz, an old word for stranger, that gave her country Wallachia its name. Romani, the people who have no country. Gypsy, a derogatory name for them. This level of curiosity left Marley with few peers in Kumpana village. The typical resident could speak at least three languages, but was barely literate. All the children attended classes at the school tower, but most drifted away when they got to be older, and their tutor could never keep up with Marley. Through it all, Father Abraham made sure she and her sisters had regular access to his own library of books. History, theology, philosophy. If it had pages with letters on them, Marley read it. Father Abraham was delivering his homily now. he just made a joke about the face children usually make when they take their first sip of wine. Then, nodding toward a few of the teens in the congregation, he added a dig about how they didn't seem to mind it so much a few years later. It drew a laugh from the adults. The teens played along and tried to wait out the moment. Looking around, Marley recognized almost every face in the church. Kumpana wasn't the sort of place many people left or moved to. Her return after a year's absence would have been front-page news if the town published a newspaper. As she swept her gaze down the aisle, a good number of the villagers' eyes snapped front in a way that made her pretty sure they had all been looking at her until just that moment. His sermon over, the service moved on. Dora, in her white gown, rose and pulled back her veil. Marley was struck by how much she'd looked like Mama with the same dark, wavy hair. She allowed herself just a moment to think about how proud Mama would have been today, then pushed the thoughts away. Dora cautiously took the cup from Father Abraham, sipped the blood as wine, and made a sour face. Marley caught Dora's eye as she turned around and gave her a smile. Dora stuck out her tongue, held it for a second, then tried to put a proper serious expression back on. Marley let out a giggle. Tata didn't mind. A cool spring had turned into a cool summer. Crops weren't doing well and stores were low, but today there would be a feast. If it weren't for that, Marley might have tried to insist on walking home. She'd have liked some time to catch up with Yawn and Kwasi but instead it was expected she'd take a carriage with her family to the town square. It was excessive, loading everyone into vehicles, unloading once they'd arrived, and then putting away all the horses took longer than walking would have. But the fashion amongst the upper class in Bucharest was to ride everywhere, and that practice had worked its way down to even the most common villager, who rode a horse or cart, even if only going a few road. As it was, Marley's leg hurt more than she'd admit, and she was happy to limp to the carriage and take the ride. Loreline got in first and offered down a hand to help her climb in, then Dorline scrambled up. They sat together for several minutes, watching Tata stop and talk to seemingly every single person in the entire principality. This was a typical post-church state for them, the kids ready to go, Tata socializing with everyone as if he didn't see most of them throughout the week at the bakery. Loreline started an old game, where they'd place bets on who he'd greet next. Traditionally Marley would then make up funny conversations doing voices for whomever Tata was speaking with. When Marley didn't speak up, Dora jumped in. She wasn't as practiced at it, but was proud to be giving it a try. After a few more minutes, when there was a lull, Marley turned to Dora and started to say, Dora, Mama would have been so, but just then Tata finally joined them, and the carriage was driven through the church's gates. The church sat on a small hill on the northern end of town, a fortified church it had been built hundreds of years ago with the idea that villagers could take refuge inside if the area were ever invaded. The village's location in the base of a valley meant it would have been easy for invaders to come from any direction. To Marley's knowledge, none ever had. The formidable defenses the church provided made Castello el on the hills above all the more redundant. The idea of Domnul Negreskru opening the castle up and allowing the villagers to shelter inside had been a frequent source of humor for Marley. Eon, who worked in the castle, had to maintain a measure of respect for its lore, and she took any chance she could to make a joke about it. The carriage pulled up to the Zarda. The village inn, tavern, and meeting place sat at the back of the town square, which had a large fountain in its center surrounded by shops, including the bakery above which Marley's family lived. Tante Angela was telling her husband, who ran the Zarda, where to set up the last of the tables in the square. Their daughter, Gabriella, was dividing her time between putting flowers in vases and trying to keep her little brother on task. At present, he was supposed to be setting up chairs, but was instead chasing one of his friends around with a stick in his hand and a serving bowl on his head. Tata hopped off first. Loreline passed him the cane. Marley instinctively shrugged off their offer to help, climbed down herself, and took the cane back. "'I'm fine. I've been using it for weeks,' she said. A later wagon pulled up, and Eon and Kwasi hopped off, followed by Eon's parents, then Kwasi's. "'Finally,' said Marley. "'She'd been eager to see her friends since she'd gotten home the day before. Eon let go of Kwasi's hand and went to offer Marley an arm, but she waved him off. "'I'm fine.'" They made their way over to their usual spot by the fountain. "'I guess you'll be sitting out the sardust then,' said Eon, referring to the traditional folk dance." An inescapable fixture wherever music was played, the Zardus was the sort of ritual you had to learn to put up with or learn to love. Often one, then the other. Just as well, you know how jealous I get, said Quasi, who then spun around and mimed a skirt rising with his movements. Ion clapped, kicked his feet, and the two performed an abbreviated version of the dance. Tante Iwana, an older woman with several dozen grandchildren, had just arrived and staked her place at one of the tables Gabriella was still trying to set. Marley saw Gabriella turn away and make a face then try to find a way to finish preparing the table while still being respectful of the elderly lady. Tanti Iwana, who knew full well she was inconveniencing the girl but simply didn't care because she'd wanted to sit there, turned and caught the end of Yon and Kwasi's little dance. She gave the couple a smile and a short applause. Yon and Kwasi took the approval, kissed one another, then took an exaggerated bow. Marley smiled. It seems like you two don't need me anyway. More importantly, it seems like there's a slot open at the academy, said Yon, nodding to Marley's leg. Do I have what it takes? Where do I audition? Then, in a lower voice, can you put in a good word for me? He performed his little dance again. They joked around a bit more, until the pressure to address Marley's injury got to be too much. Are you going to tell us what happened, asked Quasi, because we're all making bets. I say you broke it defending the other dance students from a prequelitch. Everyone knows Transvania has loads of werewolves who are always attacking young blonde girls. And my guess was that you got it in a robbery gone bad, said Eon. Oh, and how did that go, asked Marley. Morella, Elena, darling, you forget that I've known you my entire life. "'We've pulled several small capers ourselves.' "'Shh,' said Kwasi, pretending to look around as if an authority figure might overhear. "'And in that time,' continued Eon, "'I've built up a profile of Marley the Outlaw, your skills, your likely targets, and so forth. "'My assumption is that you snuck out of the dance academy every night to continue the life of crime "'you began down here in the rougher countryside so you could take advantage of the fancy types who live up north.' "'Right so far,' said Marley.' She smiled, then leaned in closer so she could play along. In actuality, she was happy that for a few more minutes at least, they weren't asking her what had really happened. You'd dig a hole in the road so that a carriage would get stuck. Then, when the driver went to right the cart, you'd use your dancer's agility to pierogi out from your hiding place. Yawn was interrupted by the sudden sound of all the air in Marley's lungs bursting from her mouth in an unexpected guffaw. She took a deep breath, started laughing again, dropped her cane, picked it up, and wiped her eyes. It was the first time she could remember laughing in over a year. When she was able, she said, Pierogi, like with potatoes. Eon gave her a confused look. She laughed again, tried to make a straight face, then said, more calmly, "pirouette." You meant pirouette. That's what I said, continued Eon. You'd crape Suzette from your hiding place, incapacitate the driver, and then, wearing your mask... Ooh, what kind of mask? Asked Kwasi. Something fancy, like from a masquerade, with Eon rolled his eyes. Wearing your mask... You'd grab their belongings off the top of the carriage and disappear into the night. You forgot about my calling card, said Marley. Oh? I'm not some boring highway robber. Obviously, I'd howl like a wolf and scratch the driver as I left, to make them think it had been a werewolf. All three laughed, almost like old times, but awkward silence followed. Quasi broke it first. Why would a werewolf be robbing people? Marley smiled, then opened her mouth wide in a look of mock outrage. How dare you second-guess my evil scheme? It worked every time. Father Abraham had just arrived and was making his way around the crowd, which meant the meal would start soon. In front of the inn, Tanti Angelo was trying to make sense of all the food the townspeople had brought to share. Dinner would be served in late afternoon. After, there would be dancing and games, then supper prepared by the inn's cook, then more dancing. The moment had clearly passed, but Quasi didn't want the jollity to stop. And what, they sent one of their famous werewolf hunters after you, and you got caught in a metal trap and had to make a daring escape, and then find a way to sneak back into the academy on a broken leg? Another Silence. What really happened, though? Don't tell me you just slipped or something, said Eon. Marley sighed, and now I'm back here, she gestured to the growing crowd assembling in the square. Kwasi gave Eon a look that made Marley wonder how much they'd been talking about her. He seemed to get that she didn't want to keep talking about it, and said, Oh, it's not so bad. Let's go find a table. Imae made mush. The three got up and went to sit down at the table where Loreline and Dora had already been joined by Kwasi's mother, whom all the kids called Imae. Years before he had moved to the village permanently, Father Abraham had come around to the various Catholic villages recruiting people to go on a missionary trip to Ethiopia. Kwasi's father was the only one from Kupana who went. If Marley going to Transylvania had been news, she couldn't imagine how the town had taken the announcement that a shepherd's son would be going to Africa with a priest from Styria, nor his return a year later with a dark-skinned bride. A man marrying a non romanian would traditionally mark him as Spurcat, unclean. Even a woman leaving her own village to live in her husband's would have at one time been enough to bring shame upon her father. He has given his daughter away from his home was a reproach no man wanted to suffer. Exactly how Kwasi's father had escaped being labeled Spur Cat wasn't something he or Amaye ever talked about. Marley knew it hadn't been easy, and that Mama and Tata had been some of the first to befriend Amaye, which had for a short time strained business at the bakery. Kwasi's name was Ghanian, and he'd said that his mother had been born there, but had fled to Ethiopia when she was young. He'd never been able to learn more. Imaya had converted to Catholicism, and by tradition no Romanian church, whether Orthodox or Roman, would turn away a Christian who wanted to worship. Beyond that, those days weren't spoken of, and now, in 1816, Emaye was well regarded both for the clothing she made and for her fusion of Romanian and Ethiopian cooking. The only time she ever mentioned her childhood home was when she complained she couldn't get things to taste right in Europe. It's wrong, but it's the best I can do, she'd say. So the kids took to just calling her spiced beans or greens or meat mush and happily gobbled it down with chunks of injera bread. Marley helped herself to some of the flatbread and lamb and took a portion of paprika hendel as well. Approximately one in five families had brought some variation of the staple chicken dish. She wasn't sure whose this was, but it made her immediately thirsty. Magically, Loreline had already filled her glass with Slivovitz. Smiling at her sister, Marley said, Laura Adelina, I hereby apologize for every time I dipped your hairbrush in the mud. Loreline flung a piece of bread at Marley, who, with amazing speed, was able to throw another piece of bread at the projectile. They struck in midair and landed on the table in a thud. Dora burst into laughter at this, then stared her mouth agape at a yawn. Marley turned to see that her friend had spread a piece of injera over his face and was pretending to be some sort of monster. He did the same gag every single time, and it had gone from being hilarious to played out to funny again. At this moment, it was doing very well with its intended audience, and as poorly as ever with the Maye. There followed a few nice minutes to eat and chat before the villager's propriety was overridden by the plum brandy. Marley was moderately surprised that anyone had managed to wait most of the way through dinner before asking about her arrival. The announcement over a year ago that she would be attending a premier dance academy in Transylvania had made her the pride of the town. Word of her unannounced return two days ago had spread to every corner of the village before the bakery's door had even swung shut, with rumors spreading that she was missing an entire leg. First to come was Tanti Stefania. She had two sons, Alexandru and Victor. Alexandru was Loreline's age. Victor was a year older than Marley. They'd kissed, once, when she was 14. Tanti Stefania fluffed her scarf around her hair, then said, "'Oh, Marilla dear, I am so sorry to hear about your leg. Will you not be able to dance anymore? Whatever happened, poor dear?' She craned her neck to try to see under the table where Marley was sitting. "'Werewolf bite. Terrible business,' said Kwasi. Eon and Loreline laughed. Marley maintained her composure. Tante Stefania didn't appreciate the joke. She crossed herself and continued staring at Marley, expectantly. "'I fell. It's broken.' Nia Eon was next. He had a son, Paul, the same age as Victor. Marley and Paul had also kissed. "'Marley, we all obviously heard about your accident. Whatever happened? Hmm? We were so hoping to see you dance again soon.' And so it went. Between visits from assorted neighbors, Marley had a few seconds to get caught up on local gossip with Loreline. She lit up when telling her sister all about how Anna and Giorga had been caught sneaking out to the woods by Anna Christina's uncle, how Anna Christina had not been caught having snuck into the woods with Emil, but then had broken up with Emil and was now dating Giorga. As Loreline was revealing the last details of the Anna-Giorga-Anna-Christina scandal, an unwelcome nasal voice asserted itself. Nehomate, allow me to offer my congratulations on this joyous occasion for your daughter and your family. My father asked me to extend his regrets that he is not able to attend himself, but he is busy readying Castello Argish for an important visitor. Marley had to decide whether to turn and face Nicolay while he continued his speech, or to just ignore him and hope it would be short. Negrescu Nicolay, son of Negrescu Radu, Kampanda's local governor and landlord, was the same age as Yon and Kwasi, a year younger than Marley. Nicolay had his father's light eyes, but otherwise favored his mother. Not particularly tall, he had dark hair and a high, aquiline nose. Their entire lives, Nicolay had seemed to want their social approval while also thinking himself their better. Marley was able to mostly act as if he was beneath her notice, but Ion's job at the castle made avoiding Nicolay impossible. He seemed to be about finished with the pleasantries his father probably made him memorize. He stepped away from Tata and turned to Marley. "'I'm so sorry about your leg. Is it very painful?' Quasi invited himself into the conversation. Oh, werewolf bites take a long time to heal. Though tomorrow is the full moon. Tonight, isn't it? Asked Ion. No, it's tomorrow. My Tata was just making me look at the almanac. It's been so cold, and he said the sheep. Marley shot Quasi a look. She wanted to just dismiss Nicolay as quickly as she could, and was briefly annoyed both that Quasi was giving him any opportunity to socialize with them, and that he'd reused the same joke about the werewolf. As she looked back to Nicolay, she caught a quick flash of something on his face. She suspected him to try to come up with some sort of not actually clever response, but instead he said, I better be off. I have other families to congratulate, and left. As dinner ended, Gabriella's family started to clear away some of the tables so the dancing could begin. Kwasi was in the middle of telling Marley about the latest craze when Gabriella came over and made a grunt that said, all in one noise, that while she was technically sorry she had to make them go, and appreciated that Marley was injured and might prefer to sit longer, she really did need to move this table now. Without a break in their conversation, the group found another spot to sit, and Kwasi continued, Oh, it started a few months ago after you left. Vasile was in the Zarda one night with his guitar. There were a bunch of people there, and he said he'd started writing this story and that he'd set to music. Then he just rattled this thing off. I wasn't there. Paul was. Anyway, it was such a hit, the next day they made him come back and tell it again in the square, and he's been adding new installments every month. It's about this group of adventurers who go off in a ship, and eventually they land on this island that has fairies living on it, and they have a queen and a trio of Romani who lived near the village, appeared out of nowhere with the violin, guitar, and flute and started to play, drowning out Kwasi, who had just recited a line that was probably a catchphrase from the story, which Jan finished with some sort of callback that was lost on Marley. She was about to tell them to slow down when Dora signaled that she wanted to go across the square to see something there, so Marley and Loreline went over with her. During dinner, a small booth had been set up outside of the shoe store. Herr Schumacher was a tall, stern man with a long, bushy beard. His shop was directly across the square from the bakery, Marley always found it funny that his name was Schumacher and he literally was a shoemaker, which helped very slightly temper the fact that she had always been terrified of him. He had a serious demeanor and never exhibited an oka of patience for having little girls running around the square. As a girl, she'd conjured all sorts of stories of kidnapping children and torturing them with the hammer he'd used to tap nails into shoes. She was willing to bet she could make Lorelai scream by miming the right movement. Fortunately, Herr Schumacher was nowhere to be seen, and in front of his shop, a Romani man was inviting passersby to listen to a story. Come, come, my friends, and listen to Harry. Harry will tell you a tale from medieval times. A number of children flocked over and sat down in front of the booth. Its bottom half was plain wood. Above that, a deep red curtain was drawn. Dory found some of her friends and took a spot behind the younger kids. Harry stood to the booth's left with a pail. Marley took a copper para coin from her apron, dropped it into a pail with a clink, and then limped to Loreline, who had already sat down. A few, but not most, of the other nearby adults produced a coin for the pail. After a few more minutes of advertising a show, Harry pulled away the curtains to reveal a small stage with a painted backdrop showing some mountains. Part of the ground in front of the mountains was covered by a piece of glass that reflected the peaks above it, creating the illusion of clear, still water. Harry began, Welcome, children, to Great Harry's house, and let me tell you a tale of a knight, a princess, and a terrible dragon. Our story begins at a pond in far-off Celine, with a maid as lovely as any might see. He had been standing to one side of the booth and now moved behind it. Reaching down, he pulled something from underneath the back of the little stage, then stepped onto a stool. The upper borders of the curtain concealed Harry so that when he dropped down a marionette resembling a young olive-skinned girl in a lovely dress, it was all the children could see. Now children, the legend I'd like to tell you about was written down by a nice monk, but I'm afraid he does not tell us much about our young lady here. He tugged on a string and the little princess waved to the crowd, then made a dainty curtsy. Dora giggled. It was the exact laugh Dora might have made at two years old, and Marley, looking at how much bigger her sister had gotten, felt a warmth knowing that even as she was growing up, she was still the same little thing who used to skip around the bakery and try to make up her own recipes. Just a quick test to see that this is actually going into the computer. The legend doesn't even give our princess a name. So I need some help. What shall we call her? Maria, yelled one of the younger children. The legend doesn't even give our princess a name. So I need some help. What shall we call her? Maria, yelled one of the younger children. Oana, another. One of Dora's friends who would also receive first communion said, Margita. The legend doesn't even give our princess a name. So we need some help. What shall we call her? Maria, yelled one of the younger children. Oana, another. One of Dora's friends, who had also received her first communion, said, Margita. Ah, Margita, wife of Basarab the founder, yes, said Harry. Thank you to my little friend in the white dress. Ah, Margita, wife of Basarab the founder, yes, said Harry. Thank you to my friend in the white dress. He tossed a piece of candy to the girl. Here we have Princess Margita. And what does our nice princess like to do? Swim, said one voice. Dance, said Dora, looking briefly back at Marley. Well, of course she does. Dora squealed as a piece of candy flew her way. Harry moved the strings, and the arms and legs of the puppet swung accordingly. Each delicate movement of his hands caused a shift in the center of gravity of the puppet, which allowed its arms, heads, legs, and body to describe arcs as graceful as any human could achieve. The movements of the puppet Margita were so captivating to Marley that for a moment she forgot all her troubles. She sat, entranced, watching the effortless agility the tiny dancer was able to mimic. Yet the story doesn't really tell us that the princess could dance. At this, Harry let the strings of the marionette fall limp. What had been but a moment before, a nimble creature full of movement, was now again a lifeless wooden puppet. For this is not the story of a princess who dances. One day a fearsome dragon came to the land and took the place as its home. Harry withdrew the puppet Margita and brought the figure For this is not the story of a princess who dances. One day a fearsome dragon came to the land and took the place as its home. Harry withdrew the puppet Margita and brought in the figure of a dragon, operating its strings so that the creature’s wings flapped up and down as it flew toward the pond and landed on its bank. The villagers were terrified, and the longer the creature stayed, the more the vile monster poisoned first the water, then the countryside. He reached below the stage and produced a new puppet. It was one figure, but resembled three men standing close together. Each wore a tunic of a different color. With the strings, Harry could move the arms and legs of the outer two men, creating the illusion that a group of several peasants were nervously approaching the dragon. He reached below the stage and produced a new puppet. It was one figure but resembled three men standing close together. Each wore a tunic of a different color. With the strings, Harry could move the arms and legs of the outer two men, creating the illusion that a group of several peasants were nervously approaching the dragon. With the other hand, he caused the dragon to rise up and roar. Harry's artistry in bringing the puppets to life was so convincing that a few of the children became frightened. Even some of the adults who were watching thought they saw true menace in the painted-on eyes. The villagers tried to scare away the dragon, but it was too powerful, so they resolved to feed it two sheep each day. But after a time, sheep ceased to satisfy it. The people passed a law and held a daily lottery, and to the beast they would feed one tender child. Harry looked down and addressed the dragon puppet directly. I wonder which of these children you might choose. That one looks rather tasty. He nodded to one of the little boys who shrieked, then laughed nervously. Harry removed the dragon and dropped into place a backdrop painted to look like a city built around a large palace with rounded turrets. The villagers came forth and stood in front of the palace. For some time they conducted this dreadful lottery, feeding it child after child. One day, when the village drew lots, out came the name of our dear Magita. A bearded marionette king wearing long robes appeared. Her father, the king, refused, offering them gold and riches to spare his daughter. But the people rose up and said, Sir, we have made and ordained the law, and our children be now dead, and ye would do the contrary. Your daughter shall be given, or else we shall burn you in your house. The puppet king slumped down and agreed to forfeit his daughter. Harry removed the king and brought in a new Margita, now wearing a white gown. Thus we had poor Margita, clad as a bride, dressed as a feast for a beast, and so like Psyche on the mountain awaiting her monster husband like Andromeda, tender princess of Ethiopia, daughter to Queen Cassiopeia, given as tribute to the Kraken. Quasi had been elsewhere in the square, but wandered over to watch the show. Speaking of tender Ethiopians, whispered Loreline, he punched her in the arm. Oh, to be a young maiden waiting to be ravaged, said Kwasi, but interrupted himself. You ever notice how many stories feature girls being forced to marry monsters? Harry's puppet show continued, but Marley couldn't stop staring at the figure of the princess. After a minute, Loreline glanced over at her sister and noticed that she'd grown pale. Marley, are you okay? Marley? Marley barely heard her sister. Loreline could tell that something was wrong. Quasi, she said. He had already gotten sucked into the story, but when Loreline pointed to Marley, he immediately saw she wasn't well. She was staring straight ahead as if in a trance. She seemed to be trying to say something, but no sound was coming out. Loreline took Marley's hand and helped her up. They walked her over to one of the tables still set up in the square. Loreline went back for the cane and checked that Dora was still watching the show. They called the Eon, who had been off dancing. He went and got a glass of Slivovitz. After a few sips of the brandy, Marley started to get some of the color back in her cheeks. "'What happened over there?' asked Loreline. "'Is it your leg? It's been a big day. Do you want to go home?' Marley stared blankly into the distance for a moment, then said, "'They were so alive, so completely alive. Did you see how she danced? She was more beautiful, more graceful, than." "'Hey,' said Eon, "'you'll dance again.' Your leg will be fine after it heals up. No, said Marley. Her voice sounded distant. No. After another pause, she seemed to be back with reality. She took another sip from her glass, then looked up. Whatever had come over her seemed to have passed. It wasn't the dancing. They were alive. Did you see them? Those puppets. I was watching them, and they were alive. They had full, animating spirits in them. And then I realized they weren't alive. They were puppets, and that man, Harry, he was making them move. They weren't moving on their own. They didn't decide to dance. They were just vessels, and it... She trailed off. The four sat for a few moments watching the children still laughing and enjoying the show. St. George had slain the dragon and converted the people of Silene to Christianity. The puppet villagers in the stage were celebrating. The human villagers in the square were dancing and chatting and laughing, unaware of what was coming down the road. Just then, Marley noticed a magpie flying across the square. It hung in the air, silhouetted for a moment by the nearly full moon already high in the sky, then landed on the roof of the Zarda. The sun had started to set, and the black bird sat in relief against the red sky. It seemed to survey the revelry below, then cocked its head to look farther off and let out a shriek. The sound of horses coming down the street could be heard. Presently, a train of several vehicles approached. First, a wagon. Mounted on a pole was a white banner with the image of a red dragon curled into a circle. Sitting inside behind the driver were six young men wearing long black coats with red lining and high collars. Some carried muskets. Last in the train was another wagon containing what seemed to be a number of supplies and one very large wooden box. Between these two was a caleche drawn by four coal-black horses. The driver was an older, stern-looking man with a white, bushy beard. Oh, I didn't realize they were coming tonight, said Eon. I should have known that's what Nicolay was talking about. I'd better get up to the castle. Marley's eye was drawn to the carriage. As she looked, the black curtains of the passenger compartment parted, and she saw the occupant inside. A man, wearing a cloak fastened by a garnet stone. He had a domed, somewhat hairless forehead and very bushy eyebrows, a high aquiline nose with arched nostrils, and a heavy mustache. But most of all, Marley was drawn to a set of piercing eyes that seemed almost red. As the strangers cantered through the square, the entire assembly stopped to watch. The horses slowed slightly, but no one got down or spoke. The man in the carriage barely seemed to notice all the people or the musicians. He didn't seem to be looking anywhere in particular until he passed near to where Marley was sitting with her sister and friends. Then, and Marley was at once unsure that anyone else had noticed it, yet unable to see how anyone could have missed it, those dark, red eyes locked themselves on her. For a moment his gaze met hers. She felt a cold shiver go down her spine, and saw a look of confusion, then recognition, in the strong, cold face. Then the horses passed them by, and Marley was left feeling alone and terrified, despite being surrounded by those she most loved. Who... who was that? That, said Eon, is a nobleman from Transylvania that Domnul Negescu has been looking forward to hosting for some time. That, Eon nodded to the passing train of wagons, is Count Dracula. Thank you for listening. This chapter was first published in August of 19 via the Wallachia app, which I created. The app is free to download from the App Store. You can find a link at wallachia.net or vampirebook.net if you can't spell that. There are currently 9, soon to be 10 chapters of the story up. You can read them or listen to the audiobooks from within the app. You're of course welcome to keep listening via this podcast, but if you download the app and get caught up, you get to vote on what happens next in the story. A few historical notes about Wallachia itself. Present-day Romania was formed in 1869 through a union of the two principalities of Moldavia and Wallachia. Transylvania, Bukovina, and a few other nations joined in 1916. Geographically, Transylvania was the northern part of the country, with the Carpathian Mountains as the rough border. Below it, you have Wallachia to the west and Moldavia to the east. Because of the Danube River's access to the sea, the region was contested over the centuries, falling at various times under the control of Hungary, Russia, and Turkey, with the Ottoman Empire in control during our story in 1816. Next chapter in two weeks, we'll go up the 680 steps to Castello Argus where Eon works as the staff prepares to receive Count Dracula.